All right, Joel chapter 2, starting with verse number 1, and it reads as follows. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is night hand. And, dark, and a darkness, and a gloominess, and a day of clouds, and a thick darkness, and the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people, and a strong, there hath not ever been the like. Neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them. And behind them a flame burneth, and the land is as the garden of Eden before them. And behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so they run. Like the noise of the chariots on the tops of the mountains, they leap. Like the noise of the flame of the fire that devoured the stubble, as a strong people set in a battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march every one on his ways and shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run into and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb upon the houses. They shall enter the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them, and the heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the reading of your word, that we may learn from it, may be edified by it, that your word may be the guide in our lives, that you can show us what we need to learn from this and what we ought to do to live our lives. We pray these things as you help me to do this today and share your message in Jesus' name. Amen. Continue with our study of Joel. If you remember from chapter 1, we went through some of the general backgrounds about Joel and some of the initial stories that kind of set up and follow that background. Joel is one of these guys we know nothing about. We don't know the story of who is Joel, who did Joel talk to, when did he live, all that stuff. But it's actually consistent with what Joel says right from the outset, that his message is not just for these people, but a message that's supposed to be shared with their children and their children's children. The message is not a particularized one. It's a general one. It's one that we ought to study even today. It's not just, oh, Joel talked to Israel way back thousands of years ago. It's Joel's message applies even to us. And what was the main thrust of his message? What is the summary of this message that I gave to everybody? Well, we could sum it up into one sentence, right, as I usually try to do. The one sentence summary of the book of Joel is that God is sovereign. That's the reminder of this book over and over again. God is sovereign. He's powerful. He's in control. And that's what Israel kept forgetting. That's what the children of Israel didn't think about, didn't have in their mind, and led them down the wrong path. We got to learn that lesson. We got to know that lesson. How did God show that in Joel chapter 1? How did God show that he's in control? He is sovereign. He's powerful. He did it through natural disasters. Right? There were some natural disasters we studied. First was the locusts, right? The locusts came and uh, it was prophesied that the locusts would come and attack their land. And back then, as you know, locusts was a real thing, a real threat. Even though today, you know, that's not a common natural disaster, right? We have enough insecticides and stuff to kill off the locusts, not a big deal. But back then it was. They were caught unaware, 
right? And God called out people who were unaware. He called out the drunkards, right? We focus on that for a second. Not just because they drank alcohol, but because of their attitude. The attitude of, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We do what we want. It's okay. And that's a bad attitude for a Christian to have, right? To make excuses, to make uh, rationalizations for doing what you want instead of doing what God wants. Then we looked at the next disaster. This is last time, right? The next natural disaster God sent upon the Israel that prophesied that was coming was drought. And it's not surprising, not surprising that in the Middle East that there could be drought, right? You look at today. What does the Middle East look like around Israel? Not a lot of water everywhere, right? So God warned them. He sent them this drought to remind them of how powerful he is, right? And we read last time about all the devastation this drought caused, right? The, 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 live, the livestock don't have water. They die, right? The crops dry up and shrivel, all that kind of stuff. You know, this is the consequence of not having that water, right? Water. And we analogize this water to, you know, our source of living water, which is God, right? Doesn't it come from uh, God or our spring of living water, as they, as they so to say, right? Because Israel was distant from that water. They were distant from God. They set themselves up to be burned to the crisp, right? And all the stuff that happened. And we know from, t- from here in the Bay Area, because we, we experienced drought so recently, right? We know what it's like. Everything browns out and dries up. And yeah, there are wildfires, are there not? It's so easy to get a wildfire when there's so much dry grass, you know, dead trees, dry, dried wood lying around. Isn't it easy? that everything can go up in smoke just in an instant. Isn't it true today also that our Christian lives, when we separate ourselves from God, when we put ourselves away from God, that our Christian lives can go up in smoke in an instant, that we can fall into sin so quickly. But when we're close to God, ah, no problem, right? Just think about this way. When are you most likely to fall into sin, right? Is it going to be right here where you're in church and the fellowship of other Christians? around in the house of God, honoring him, singing his song, studying his word? No. I dare say that one of the lowest crime places in the entire United States, right, is probably inside of churches. Not to say that it never happens, but I'm guessing it's very rarely that people get murdered in church or someone lies to you in church or someone steals, you, steals your stuff in church compared to, say, like a bar. How many times do people get murdered in a bar? Right? Or someone stole your money in a bar, or gets in a fight with you in a bar, or lies to you in a bar. I would say if you compare the two, the bar obviously would be a much higher incidence of sin. Because we're closer to God right here. Right? We're closer to God. We can cling to God. We have God uh, nearby. Israel, they went on that wrong path where they had a, basically a drought of God. We didn't need God. We don't stay away from God. And they suffered the consequences of that. These natural disasters are a reminder. Natural disasters always are a reminder because we can't control them and we can't predict them and we can't do anything about them, right? That's why they're called literally acts of God. What better reminder is there that there is a God when something happens, like the Hawaii volcano erupts, when there's an earthquake, when there's a wildfire, when there's whatever. That's a reminder. Oh, God is there. God is powerful. God only God is in control. We humans can't control it, right? We can't make the volcano stop erupting. We can't make the ground stop shaking. We can't control whatever it is, right? 
So that's last time. We start chapter 2. Chapter 2 continues the prophecy of Joel and Joel's warning to Israel. But you'll notice here there's something different, right? We're not talking about natural disasters anymore. In fact, we're not even talking about the time that Joel is living about. Look right in verse number 1. When it talks about, blow you the trumpet in Zion. What does it say after that? What is coming? For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Right? The day the Lord cometh. And then you'll see in verses 2 all the way through verse 10 or so, talking about this army, right? It looks, sounds like this terrible army that's coming to attack the land and destroy things, you know. Talking about how they're going to, you know, enter into all their houses and, you know, do all this uh, stuff, you know, how they're a fierce army. Horrible thing coming again to Israel. Verse number 11, though. Verse number 11 reads this. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. It's his army. For his camp is very great. Right? For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? So let's talk about this army and this this thing today. And try to figure out what is Joel talking about? Why is he talking about it? Talks about the day of the Lord. Now, if you guys have been studying your Bible... You may have heard of this term before, right? It's not like uh, it's something that comes up again. And in fact, the more we study these prophets, the more we're going to hear about the day of the Lord. And in fact, if you pay attention to Nathan's Sunday school, when he talks about the book of Revelation, he's actually talking about the day of the Lord. This term, the day of the Lord, has a specific meaning. It talks about that day. Well, it talks about a literal day and also, you know, a period, right? The literal day that talks about is the day that the Lord returns. The second coming. Jesus, when he comes back to earth, the rapture. And again, you probably heard enough of that from Nathan, and he knows more about it than I do. And, you know, I'm just speaking generalities here because we could spend, you know, hours and hours talking about what does it mean to be the day of the Lord and what happens in the day of the Lord and all that kind of stuff. But that's when it starts, so that's just a start. Jesus comes back. That's the start of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord refers to the day kind of generally, right? Like, oh, you know, we might say like, oh, today is like the day of computers, right? They kind of refer to like the age we live in, right? So we talk about the day of the Lord. It's like the age of the Lord when the Lord comes back, right? That this is the time period, right? We had the day of man beforehand, right? Which is everything leading up to Jesus' return. And now Jesus is back, right? So this is the day of the Lord, this time period, right? It's a time period from basically when he comes back to the end, right? And this is what Nathan is talking about for weeks and weeks and years and years, right? In Revelation, right? He's gone through all the details. And there's a lot of details, right? It's not just Jesus comes back. It's Jesus comes back. There's a tribulation. There's a judgment. There's this and that and this and all this other stuff, right? So much stuff that I can't even remember off the top of my head to tell you all the things, right? Because you're studying it. There's a whole book of prophecy about what happens during that day of the Lord when Jesus is back. And part of it, yes, part of it is yes that Israel is going to suffer during this day, during this time, right? The ones that have not accepted Christ as Savior, that were not raptured up, that are still here to face all the trials and tribulations and all that stuff. Yes, they are going to face things like invading armies, just like described in the book of Joel. Bible's consistent, right? The stuff that Joel talks about, it's consistent with what John writes about in Revelation. It's all together. It's all there. 
And it's all scary, isn't it? Isn't this a scary thing for people that don't have Jesus Christ? The things that they face, that they're going to face, invading armies and destruction and all these things, right? Because we see that this is the will of God, right? Verse 11, I said, right? It's before his army, God's army. This is God's will that this would all happen to Israel. But why does Joel talk about all this stuff, right? We know from our own lives, the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. It didn't happen in the time of the people who lived in Israel thousands of years ago, right? This prophecy is like such a future, future way in the advance prophecy. Why does he even bother saying that to them way back when, right? Thousands of years ago. Why does he talk about this thing? Well, a couple reasons, right? Number one, back to the beginning. Back to what we said in chapter one. Remember, this book was not just written for the people in Israel who were sinning way back when. It's for the children and the children's children. It's for all generations, right? So even though the prophecy didn't affect the people in their lifetime, right? It sure affects our lifetime, right? Jesus would come back today, right? Or he'd come back in 10 years. Or he'd come back in 1,000 years. Who knows, right? It still has meaning for everyone to know more about that time, right? That's one reason I would say he put this in there. But another reason I think is important. It's important, again, to remind us of God's judgment, God's constant judgment, God's constant judgment forever, right? He's not just saying, hey, you're going to be judged. There's going to be a locust thing coming to you soon. Or you're going to have a drought coming up in a few years. He's reminding all of Israel that God is watching over them how long? As long as it takes until Jesus comes. Because what does it mean when Jesus comes? It means we're reaching the end. The end times. That's what they call it, right? Some people call it the end times, right? The end times. The last, however many, you know, you have to go through tribulation and the millennial reign or whatever. But whenever you hit the stuff that happens in Revelation, we know we've hit the time. There's a designated end point, right? When it all ends. Basically the end of history. Is it not? That's what we're studying in Revelation when we do it, right? All the stuff that happens in between the time Jesus comes back all the way to the time when it's all over, when God says it's all over. That means that Joel is reminding them of this, that God is watching us now, today, right? When the locusts are coming. God's watching them in the future when the drought is coming. God is going to be with us all the way till the end of history. That's right. Even when Jesus returns, even after the millennial reign, even after everything, God is there. Right? Because that's it. The day of the Lord is basically the end, the end of history. That's how long God is with us. Forever. And that's a reminder to us in the way we act and the way we live. Do we act as if we understand that God's judgment is constant, that God's judgment is with us all the way? Israel did it. They didn't fear God's judgment. They didn't say, oh, we better watch out. Jesus has got God's watching, right? The lesson for us from this is that reminder to us. God is watching us. And that our behavior, our actions are judged by God, right? Isn't that true that all of us have to stand before judgment in God, right? And account for ourselves at some point. That's why it's so important. That we do have Jesus Christ as our Savior from our sins. That's why it's so important that in our lives, that even after we're saved, that we bear in mind that God is there, God is with us, and that we ought to honor him in the way we act and not dishonor him. 
People forget when people aren't around, right? When no one's watching, you think, oh, it's okay. But in this day and age, of all day and ages, we should realize that that's not the case. Even in the non-Christian context, we live in the age where we ought to be careful all the time. Why is that? We live in the age of video everywhere, cell phones everywhere, where our behavior is under the microscope all the time. How many lives have been ruined by simple videos going up on Twitter, on YouTube, or whatever, right? You know, most recently you see this stuff when people go on these like racist rants, right? They go on some racist rant and some post on the internet and says, who is this guy? And guess what? They figure out who the guy is, right? What happens? Gets fired from his job, gets ostracized. For forever, whenever someone Googles his name, what's gonna come up? To me, oh, this guy did the racist rant and was posted online and got a million hits, right? We see it locally, right? People do stupid stuff not realizing that someone is watching. You guys know the Channel 7 sports anchor, Mike Schumann, right? Did a very stupid thing, right? He was at the Warriors practice right after the Warriors game or whatever. Or something. It was after the Warriors game. And he saw that the Warriors security guy had left his very nice Warriors jacket on the bench, right? What'd he do? Well, we all know what he did because there's video cameras, right? He took the jacket and he stuffed it under his jacket and he walked out the door and he left. Now, how stupid can you be not realizing that, oh, there's cameras in the Oracle Arena, right? There's cameras watching people. And sure enough, when the guy lost his jacket and wanted to figure out what happened to his jacket, he looked at the security tape and he saw the guy steal his jacket. It got posted to the internet and now everybody knows, oh, this guy stole the jacket for whatever reason, who knows what reason. And what happened? He had to resign as a sports anchor from Channel 7, right? Because everybody knows, oh, you know, we saw it, he did wrong. We have whole HR department trainings. I don't know about your work, but in my work, we have HR department trainings that says, oh, everything you write in an email, you have to assume someone's gonna read it that you don't want. Or every phone conversation, you have to act as if someone's recording it. So be on your best behavior, right? We get all these warnings, yet people are stupid and don't follow it. And how much more so should we have all these warnings from God, right? We have it from our HR department, God's giving us a bigger warning. That our behavior has got to be judged as if you've got to think God's watching in judgment all the time. It's not just, oh, when I'm in church, I've got to act good. Oh, it's not just in certain circumstances. All the time. Think about it. Am I acting the way God wants? Israel lost sight of that. They said, you know what? We can worship these idols. Who cares, right? We can do all these sins. Who cares? What about our attitude? Do we lose sight of that? Are we far away from that? Or do we remember God is in judgment? Even the time of Joel, even all the way through the end of time when Jesus comes back. For all time, God is with us. For all time, God has this warning for us. Do we respect that warning? Do we care about that warning? I think that's the message here of the first part of Joel chapter 2. But right now, people are beating down the door. So let's end in the word of prayer. Dear God, thank you for the message of Joel here. A reminder of your sovereignty, of your judgment. God, may we act in accordance with that. You know, we've got to be on our guard. People are telling us already to be on our guard, be on our good behavior. People are watching, right? Well, we know God is watching. That's even more serious. God, help us to uh, remember that and to always be guided by your way, your word, and your will. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.